Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 182nd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. You guys and my friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit engaging young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, our graphic novels, our animated videos, even now our AI animated videos. So stay tuned for that. Today, we are joined by Pano Canelos. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I wanna remind all of you who are watching us uh, on Zoom, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, X, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions. So go ahead, get started, and uh, we'll put you in the queue. So our guest today, Dr. Pano Canelos, is the founding president of the University of Austin, a new higher education institution founded on the belief that colleges need fewer administrators, and more intellectual openness, uh, committed to freedom of inquiry, freedom of conscience, and civil discourse. He previously served as president of St. John's College, Annapolis, and earned degrees from uh, Northwestern University and Boston University, along with a PhD from the University of Chicago. He is an outspoken advocate um, for liberal arts education. Uh, Pano argues that mainstream universities have abandoned these values and hopes that um, to help that with UATX students uh, to become adept thinkers and engaged and innovative citizens. Pano, thanks for joining us. What a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My only question for you is how come it took you 182 episodes to, to invite me? We were saving the, the best for later. We were practicing, you see. We wanted to make sure uh, that we were, you know, out of our beta phase, that we had proof of concept, um, because, you know, interviewing somebody of your uh, esteemed background wanted to make sure we had our ducks in a row. And plus, you know, I understand you have some interesting news to share, some new milestones. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit more meat on, on the bones. Uh, why don't we just start off with that? Tell us about the good news. Sure. Um, well, again, thank you for having me as part of this conversation. I'm very excited to share some, um, recent developments at the University of Austin. Uh, and just to give everybody a little bit of background, the University of Austin began as a project just two years ago, um, November, 2021. In fact, we made our public announcement on November 8th, 2021, we told the world that we're building a new university, yeah. that we were you know, going to build a university dedicated to fearless pursuit of truth. And exactly two years later, on November 8th, 2023, we opened up applications for our first class of freshmen, our first freshman cohort. So in under two years, we have received authorization from the state of Texas to be America's newest university. We're officially a university now. And, uh, and proudly the, the first new university in the state of Texas in 60 years. It's 1963 was the last time a new, new private university was formed. And I would say that in and of itself, that particular data point says a lot about what some of the problems facing higher education are. I mean, if in a place like Texas, which has grown from 10 million people in 1963 to 30 million today. There have been no new institutions, private institutions before ours. It says something about how difficult it is to start universities in, in the United States of today. And you know how hungry the country is, I think, for new institutions that are going to provide new ways of thinking about higher education. Uh, how... Tell us a little bit about the applicants. How is that going? Where are they coming from? Was it from Texas? Yeah. So it's really exciting. So one of um, one of the challenges we faced at a new university is we were literally not allowed to market to a single student before we received authorization from Texas to be a university. So unlike most schools where you're cultivating your student pipeline for years and they finally apply. Um, we just sort of turned on the lights and said, we're open for business. So we didn't know what to expect. So 9.30 a.m. on November 8th, we officially sent out notification that we were opening applications for our first class. 9.31 a.m., we received our first application. 
And it's wow. been an un, uh, unabated stream since then. In fact, you know, we're only recruiting for the first class from the founding 100 students, the Brave 100 for the very first class. We received over 100 applications that very first day. And, and they're coming from all over the country, all over the world. Very exciting, like bright, maverick students. So we're really pleased. Uh, and when does the application window close? That's a good question. So it's rolling applications um, because you know, not having any historical record of how many applications we were going to receive as an institution, we sort of opened up the door and we said, uh, you know, we're going to, um, we're giving each of the first 100 students a full four-year tuition scholarship. So we've raised money for that. So we're limited, capped off the number of students we have. So as soon as we've accepted our first 100 students and they've accepted our offer, the door will close. Uh, so it may be a matter of months, it may be longer. We just, we don't know how long the process is gonna take. All right, so all of you watching, if you have children or grandchildren um, who are applying to college or you know are gonna be doing that in the next year or so, uh, we're going to put the links on where to do that in the chat yeah. across the platforms um, because, wow, what a neat historic uh, opportunity to be a part of this project. I think that would be pretty, pretty cool. And hopefully a uh, hundred years from now, people will be looking back and they'll be going to their, their, because of all of our exponential advancing technologies, they'll be going to, to their 100th college reunion. <laughs> so that would be, that I hope so. Cool. I hope so. You know, it's funny. I one of the things I tell students, who are prospective students, who you know I speak to all the time, is um, you know you have a unique opportunity here. To think about it. You 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 don't get a chance just to go to a university, but you get a chance to found a university with us. How many how many students get to found their own alma mater? Get to be there like right there day one, and then play a role in creating the culture of the institution and laying the groundwork for future generations. So. It is an historic moment, and it's it's a great honor. As as you mentioned earlier, I had been president of a place called St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which was the third oldest, is the third oldest college in the United States. It was founded in 1696. So I've gone from being the president of the third oldest college in the U.S. to being president of America's newest university. That's really cool. That is amazing. So um, thinking back even before you were a, uh, a college freshman, um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and uh, any early influences um, that set you on, on your path. Obviously you're a um, advocate for the great books, any books that uh, you were reading as a young man that um, really resonated with you. Sure. Well, I, I probably have one of the least likely pathways to becoming a college president um, because I can't, you know, I grew up in a family. My parents I grew up in a Greek immigrant family. My parents were not um, educated people. Um, uh, neither had had even, neither attended a university. Um, and my mom had sort of the equivalent of a high school degree. My father, less than that. Nobody in my family had ever been to college before I attended college. So for me, going to university was just a massive leap of faith, you know, and, and I didn't know what to expect and what I would encounter when I when I arrived there. Um, but I was, as a young person growing up in the back of my dad's Greek diner, you know, I, I just read a lot of books. I loved reading. Um, I spent a lot of time just, you know, with my nose between the pages, um, in between like peeling potatoes and slicing onions, because I had to do all that stuff as well. And, uh, and reading and I was, you know, very, very attracted um, as, a, as a young person to poetry, surprisingly, um, and, and drama. I loved language that was uh, expressive, language that was in verse, language that was heightened. Um, and so spent quite a bit of time with that. I mean, I, one of my, um, favorite early uh, pleasures was uh, reading like Hopkins and Tennyson, sort of very musical, lyrical English poets. I just loved that. Wasn't exactly sure I knew what they meant all the time, but I thought the language was really fascinating. And it may have come from, you know, growing up, you know, in a, in a sort of you know, kind of micro culture environment in a very Greek community 
where um, English wasn't the first language for most of the people I was around. So, you know, just grabbing onto that and finding pleasure in it was really great. You know, if there is one constant among all of our guests here on the Atlas Society Asks is that every single one uh, recalls being just having their nose in books as, as a child. And um, it reminds us how uh, that habit of reading is um, foundational for uh, living a, a productive life, living a life of inquiry, um, and keeping one curious. And it's also a reason that I, uh, not thrilled about the fact that um, in the late 70s, 70% uh, of young people were reading books every day just for fun. So it wasn't that unusual back then. These were books they were reading, uh, not because they were assigned at school, but just because they were, that was fun for them. That percentage today is uh, down to 12%. So that's mm -hmm. a huge drop. And it's particularly challenging for um, a group like ours that are trying to uh, encourage people to read not just any books, but uh, the books of Ayn Rand um, and her two uh, major books are quite uh, the tomes. So um, as a result, that's where we get creative because the whole graphic yeah. novel genre, particularly among young people, has exploded and um, finding ways like with our AI animated book trailer of Atlas Shrugged to market the books and uh, let people know that it's that it's a real adventure. And then also uh, having people on this show that have um, read Ayn Rand and um, for, for many of them, uh, it, it was a key and a lock. Speaking of second generation Greek Americans, um, Peter Diamandis calls Atlas Shrugged his Bible and mm. uh, rereads it every few years. Um, so uh, that probably wasn't the case for you, but any takeaways from having read Ayn Rand's works? Yeah, look, I, I, I fully understand why, especially for young people, there is that key in the lock effect, right? Um, uh, you know, what great, books do and what I think Rand's work does is they pull back the veil. They show you the things that have sort of been hidden from sight, like the way the way, way humans function or society functions or that, you know, there's sort of that moment where you're like, aha, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even realize what was hidden from me. And I think, you know, one of the things that Rand's work does, it presents sort of, um, you know, these, this kind of, um, decoder, like this, like secret decoder to the way the world is actually operating. And for a lot of young people, I think that's very appealing and um, enlightening. And I think, you know, for me in general, I think the reason that reading is so important as opposed to, you know, as you said, I mean, I, you said the stat is 12% of young people read books for pleasure. I haven't seen the stats. That sounds just about right to me, given my own experience. Um, and I think the reason that it's it's so important and so sad that that's diminishing is that um, human beings are creatures of logos. In other words, we're, we're creatures that actually, we experience the word, world through language, right? All the time, we have this constant school of language going through our head. And it's, you know, and even when we're not aware of it, you know, this is, this is the way we come to understand the universe is by apprehending it through language. And so we're sort of embodied logos. And that's what a book is. A book is an embodiment of logos. It's it's that spool of language that has come from somebody else's experience, somebody else's head. And being able to encounter that, I think, is very, very profound. And it affects us differently than images do or other, other ways of apprehending the world. And so spending long periods of concentrated time with lots and lots of language as you do with Rand's work, which are, you know, as you say, tomes, I think is um, diving deeply into what it means to be a human being. Yeah, you know, I remember a conversation that I had with one of our longtime donors, um, Nancy Greenberg, and asking her about how did she come to uh, discover Ayn Rand? And she said, she loved reading. 
And she just wanted to, she had a summer before her and she wanted a book that was going to keep her company. So, you know, she'd see this one book and she's that's kind of skimpy. Uh, you know, that'll last me a couple of weeks. And she saw another book, too lightweight. She saw this big book, didn't have any idea what it was about, but it was a big book. And she's like, oh, this is perfect. This is going to be where I'm going to be living uh, for the rest of the, the summer. And so um, times really have changed. Uh, and that's why I think it is important to continually to make the case. And of course, your your great books advocacy. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. I understand that was even before you became president of St. John's College. Yeah. Um, did, did that make you stick out a bit as someone countering academic trends of being anti-Western canon? I think so. Um, look, I, the the case to be made for the great book seems to me um, irrefutable. (laughs) And that is, you know, we are all human beings. We're on this planet for a very short while. We're trying to figure out what to make of the world, what to make of ourselves. And yet there's this conversation that's been going on for thousands of years, people asking the same questions that we ask the world. And having access to that conversation, being a participant in that, hearing, you know, what people have thought, what they've said, what, you know, what what they've proposed about what it means to be a human being, what they've argued about, what the most important issues that have been raised have been and how they've been addressed. To me, you know, participating in that conversation by reading these books and discussing these books um, is, you know, it seems natural, it seems organic, it seems a privilege that we have. And if you don't, if you don't engage in that, it seems like a, a tremendous loss of opportunity. Um, so it's not, you know, people often deride, let's say, the, the Western tradition or the great books as being somehow um, too narrow, exclusionary. Um, if you actually jump into tradition and you, re- and you start reading, you realize that all you encounter is like clashing ideas and a, a thousand different voices and experiences from across the continents and every possible um, every possible human manifestation that you can find. Uh, it's so um, kaleidoscopic that it, you know, it really expands what we understand to be, to meet what it means to be human. And I would say like, Sometimes I I, I want to say, I, I shy away from the phrase, the great books, because that seems limiting to me. I think there are great books. And what we consider the great books are mostly, um, mostly fit that category. There are lots of other books out there that are great books as well. And part of the pleasure of being a curious human being is finding those to read, you know, in addition to the ones that are already on the bookshelf. And I think that's where we go beyond just the Western tradition. You know, I mean, I'll give an example. One of the one of my great pleasures in life was discovering Japanese no drama. So no drama is this highly historical, highly ritualistic, um, perf- performed theater that's been preserved um, over the centuries. And uh, thinking about the way that the Japanese represent themselves through this tradition on stage versus, let's say, the Shakespearean tradition, which is my background, you know, as an academic. I mean, that just expands my understanding of the world in both directions. All right. I want to remind everybody who is watching, we're going to be taking your questions. So uh, start typing them in the comment section, and we're going to get to them shortly. But I still have a few of my own. And uh, Pano, I was thinking, I wish I'd been a fly on the wall at some of those uh, initial conversations with the founding members of the university. I understand there was a meeting at Joe Lonsdale and I'm curious, like, did everybody, how did you all get started? You know, where where did the sparks come from? How did you guys coalesce? So I was brought into the conversation at the beginning by Barry Weiss. Um, So so Barry, so Barry, Barry and I had a, we didn't know each other. We had a mutual friend named Joshua Katz at Princeton who was being um, uh, persecuted at Princeton for his conservative political views. And not even just for a comment he had made in response to um, some Black Lives Matter activity 
and they were, were doing everything to strip him of his tenure and, and eject him from the university. And they were ultimately successful at that. So I knew Joshua and Barry knew Joshua and she was so angry about what was happening. She asked a friend of hers, like, I need to talk to a college president. I gotta, I, I, I need to find out what's really going on in higher education. So, so I was connected with her. And we had a, a Zoom call and we started chatting and you know, we really saw eye to eye on many of the issues facing higher education. And so towards the end of the call, she's like, oh no, she goes, we need to start a new university. That's, you know, that's the only thing to do in these days. We need to start a new university. And, I'm, and I said, Barry, that's great. Let, yeah, let me know when it happens. I'll be on your advisory board. You know, <laughs> I'll cheer you on. And she's like, no, we, we need to do this. We need to do this and you need to be the president of this new university. And I thought, oh, I'm like, Fair, I've got, a, I got a job, I have kids, I got a family. Yeah, you know, you're I, 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 you're all set. Drop everything and go start. And I, so, um, and 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 then she she called me out and she said, um, you need to do this because everything happening in higher education is your fault. And I thought, my fault? I'm like, wait, I thought I was one of the good guys. Like, well, how how am I to blame? And she said, well, you know, you've spent your whole career in higher education. You've become a college president you've identified what the issues are. If people like you don't step up and do anything about them, who's going to do that? And, and you know, you, you know, the moral weight of this falls on you. So, you know, long story short, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I couldn't help but agree that she was right. And, and so we, we began through other connections, gathering together with people such as Joe Lonsdale and Neil Ferguson and Arthur Brooks and others. And, we had a kind of initial meeting in Austin to talk about, you know, how realistic the prospect of a new university might be. We all agreed that it was, um, you know, a ridiculously audacious project to take on, but that it was absolutely essential that we do so. And given that I was the only one who really had run any institution of this sort, you know, I had to call up my wife at the end of our meeting and say, honey, I, uh, pack the bags, we're moving to Austin, Texas in a few months. Amazing, wow. Um, and look at what you guys have accomplished since then. So it's really breathtaking. Okay, I'm as promised, I'm going to turn uh, to our audience questions. We've got quite a few coming in. Our uh, friend on Instagram, My Modern Galt, uh, asks, from his experience, many community colleges and universities have to spend the first semester just getting students ready to think and learn at a college level. Why do you think that is? And do you think uh, University of Austin will face this same hurdle? Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I don't think it's any, you know, um, it will surprise anybody to know that you know uh, the K through twelve system is not um, is not functioning as it should. That you know we are seeing young people graduate out of high school who don't necessarily have the kind of fundamentals that one needs to 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 move into higher education. Some of it has to do with what we were talking about earlier: this kind of movement away from a culture of literacy and numeracy to a, a culture of, you know, some kind of, um, you know, uh, e immediacy around, you know, social media and, 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 and living a life in a kind of digital format and that, you know, that, that the kind of fundamental skills that underlie learning are lost in the shuffle. Some of it is, frankly, I think, um, you know, I'm going to probably be criticized by some people for saying this, but that's not the first time I would be criticized for saying something. Uh, I, I think there are too many colleges and universities, um, says the guy opening a new one, right? So total hypocrite here. But, um, you know, at some point we decided that everybody had to go to college or you had no social value, you had no social status. And that's a ridiculous thing to, to, to believe. So we've sort of inflated the, the, the nominal value of having a college degree such that everybody feels like they have to go and, 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 you know, join a, a, a college, a community college for your university to gain this piece of paper called a diploma in order to assert their kind of social value or, or social worth. Um, 
I mean, that's utterly absurd. As I said, you know, my own parents were not educated people. I don't know anybody, who, I, I have not met a person walking the planet wiser than my five foot two Greek father. All right, so the idea that people feel compelled to go on to college inflates the number of colleges that we have um, and ultimately sets up so many people for failure. There, my stats may be slightly off because I haven't looked at them in a while, but I remember at one point, it was only six out of every 10 people who started working towards a college degree actually earned a college degree. So 40% of the people who started college degrees did not make it. Imagine if you were running a business, like a restaurant, like my dad, and only 40% of the people received their food, right? It, your business would collapse pretty quickly. Yet we have a, a system of higher education in which only 60% of the people are coming and receiving what they've come for. That should tell us that there's a systemic problem behind higher education. Well, one school of thought is that you know, not everybody, not even a majority of people need to feel compelled to, to go to a, a four-year college, um, that some would be better off either going to a trade school or in many cases, just, you know, diving into the school of real life and doing internships and getting their feet wet with, uh, you know, work experience. So what is the case Obviously, you must believe in it. Why it still matters for some people, at least, to to get a uh, a formal liberal arts education as a good foundation for professional life. Yeah. So the the purpose of universities has always been. I mean, going all the way back to like the medieval origins of universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Sorbonne, etc has always been to prepare people for the knowledge economy, all right? And, and what I mean by the knowledge economy, it sounds like a modern term, but what I mean by that is just for professions whose work is primarily of an intellectual nature. Uh, in the medieval times, you know, when, when Oxford and Cambridge started, there were the, the knowledge economy was pretty narrow. There were only three courses of study at Oxford and Cambridge um, in their early years, and that was theology, law, and medicine. Those were the areas of study where you know, the work was primarily intellectual in nature. And obviously over time, the scope of professions that are primarily intellectual in nature has expanded and universities serve to prepare graduates to work in that milieu. How do you do that? Um, by essentially cultivating skills of creative and critical thinking, expanding one's capacity to use numbers and language in sophisticated ways. I mean, this is the, this is the work of a university. Um, why is a liberal education important as part of this? You know, because you could just say, well, then, you know, all you need to do is go to university and you're gonna be a computer scientist. You just need to learn how to code. Or you're gonna be an accountant. You just need to learn how to do those things. Um, because at its deepest level, those people who are going to be working in the knowledge economy are also going to be those people who are, um, you know, generally driving our culture in, in one direction or another. In other words, they're going to have an outsized role to play in the, in the culture that they're participating in. And so making sure that even as they become very good at computer programming or engineering or you know, uh, you know, as a psychologist or that, that they also develop a kind of comprehensive moral matrix, understanding what it means to be a human being. Um, there's a societal interest in that to make sure that, you know, our, our titans of industry, our entrepreneurs, our innovators, our business leaders, our politicians are also intensely thoughtful and well-informed human beings. And I think that's the purpose of a liberal education. All right. On Facebook, Alexander Hirsch asks, what do you think is the cause for so many young people dismissing the classics as books just written by old white dead men? Um, well, they are books written by old white dead men for the most part. Uh, so the question is, why, why dismiss that? I mean, that's, that's the question. Look, you know, we live in a culture 
let's just call it that solipsistic, right? That that um, the the primary value that's promoted is the value of self-regard. You know, we are each the center of our own universe, and so we we're, we're teaching young people in particular to lionize um, is to look for things that reflect themselves back upon themselves, right? To, to valorize the self. Well, to read a book that's 2000 years old is to enter a very different um, moment in the human experience, a very different mindset. I mean, there are points of conjunction between a Homer and somebody today. There's also radical differences. And so what books allow us to do, especially the classics, is to step outside of ourselves and to come to understand the world in a different key and to try and in many ways, let's say, um, bring that understanding into who we are today to, to sort of change ourselves accordingly. In a narcissistic, solipsistic, what I call the age of I, the age we live in, um, we aren't incentivizing young people to be self-reflective and to change themselves. We're telling them that they're absolutely wonderful and perfect the way they are. So why bother with those old books? Because they take an, an awful long time to read. I might add, uh, of course, chiming in from an objectivist perspective that rather than the age of I, it's also kind of the age of we. So it's no longer I as an individual who is searching for answers to my questions, um, finding ways to pursue my happiness, but I am a woman or I am a heterosexual, homosexual, I am a black, I am a this, I am a that, mm -hmm. I am I am the group. And, um, you know, if, I, so I, I need to read something that represents my group. And, um, you know, also this idea of, uh, this postmodern idea of oppressors and oppressed, very kind of uh, warmed over Marxist uh, application that, well, white men are the oppressors. And so they kind of uh, get downgraded as well um, from that. Well, I, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a kind of suspicion. I mean, the current understanding of power dynamics, you know, which I think are radically flawed. I think they're, it's completely wrong to think that all human relations are simply relations of domination and submission. Like it's, human relations are much more complicated. Human beings sacrifice themselves. Human beings cooperate. There are lots of things we do that aren't just about power between human beings. But but young people are um, kind of fed this ideological stream that you know that that, that constantly tries to um, convince them that every human relationship is simply about who's on top and who's on the bottom. So they're suspicious about books, especially old books, that those books are somehow trying to manipulate them or dominate them or uphold, you know, the dominant power structure, you know, when in fact, almost every book that we think of as a great book was subversive. Right. I mean, even going back to Homer, I mean, you go all the way back to Homer. The Iliad is not a book that glorifies war or glorifies the Greeks. It makes us think deeply about the cost of war in a culture that was a heroic culture. You know, it, it creates a kind of uh, it, 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 it raises our, our antenna of human sensitivity to to look at these things more complexly. So here these, you know, here young people are suspicious, like, you know, well, what is what is Shakespeare really about? What are his politics? How is he trying to manipulate me? When in fact, Shakespeare gives you the very tools you need to see the world in, uh, you know, I, I think a more dynamic and objective way. Interesting. All right, on YouTube, Kingfisher21 asks, free speech appears to be constantly under attack on campus, many campuses cave due to uh, financial backers threatening to pull funding. How is UATX going to handle this issue of free speech and how important yeah. is that to your mission? I mean, look, uh, um, our, our core mission is a commitment to principles of open inquiry, freedom of conscience, civil discourse, the very foundations what one thinks of as free speech or academic freedom. 
I mean, that's that's the lifeblood of our institution. And so, you know, we are purposefully creating a university that is not just going to be committed to those principles on paper, but that's going to live those principles out. And to um, to assure that, you know, we, you know, we, we have often asked ourselves a question, you know, lots of institutions say they're committed to free speech or to the pursuit of truth. And yet they all seem to be ratcheting in one direction where they're sort of increasingly becoming the kind of aperture of ideology is sort of narrowing further and further. And there are fewer and fewer things you can talk about or question. How are we going to pre prevent that? Um, we've taken a kind of, uh, I think, a kind of simple but maybe inspired route. We, our founding documents, the UATX Constitution, articulate very clearly our commitment to open inquiry, civil discourse, intellectual pluralism, all these things. And in order to assure that we stand by our mission and stand by principles, we've instituted something no other university has up to this point. And that is, let's call it a judicial branch of our institution, a, a Supreme Court, an adjudicative council that exists outside the university, but to which the university is responsible to. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be comprised of people who are constitutional experts, free speech effort experts, public intellectuals, whose job it is to, to hear any case that might arise at our university where academic freedom or free speech is compromised. And then we are accountable to that, to that group for whatever they, they find. So if a, a faculty member, a student, a member of our staff um, makes the case that the university or somebody at the university is limiting their ability to speak freely, is has punished them for some idea they've shared or something that they've said, it could be taken directly to this body and whatever that body determines the university has to abide by. So we're actually putting the, the, the instruments of governance around protecting free speech. All right, these questions might be a little outside your bailiwick, uh, but Candice Marina on Facebook is asking, what do you make of Governor Abbott's push for school choice vouchers? Uh, dovetails into another question from Charles Chamberlain about how difficult might it be to dismantle um, the teachers unions and, and the government school monopoly. It's, not really your your focus is on higher education, but I don't know if you have any thoughts to share on that. Well, I guess I'll share it from the perspective of higher education. Um, look, we are starting a new university because we believe that the greater the range of choice is, the better of the whole system will be, right? You know, we believe in in, in creating heterodox institutions, institutions that, that um, you know, zig when everybody else is zagging. And I think in principle, that's good for education at large. I think the principle of choice, the principle of competition um, is essential to making sure that the system of higher education and the K-12 system stay sharp, stay responsive, uh, and allow for, you know, uh, innovative ideas to come in, allow for experiments in, in entrepreneurial um, endeavors and that. So I think all of this is really key. Uh, to me, you know, um, you know, uh, the marketplace of ideas needs a marketplace of institutions. Right. Well, and, you know, I mean, we all know that monopolies, particularly forced monopolies, uh, tend to produce inferior products at higher prices. And so um, that is you know, when you squeeze off any kind of choice and competition, um, it's no surprise that the per pupil cost of, of public education keeps going up and the quality keeps going down. So, yeah, I look, think, uh, I speak all the time about the, co the cost of higher education and how to create a new financial model. There is a there is a direct relation between the fact that there has been no new private university in Texas in 60 years until now. And the skyrocketing tuition that we've seen at universities, not just in Texas, but across the country. The inability to offer competition has really been what has driven in many ways the cost of higher education beyond the reach of most families. Scott on YouTube asks, how much federal regulation is there of 
private universities. What kind of regulations will you have to deal with? Yeah, it's um, so federal regulation. So it, states are the ones that authorize universities. So if you look at if you look at your college degree, if you have a college degree, it always mentions usually in Latin the state that you get the degree in. So you know we are authorized by the state of Texas to be a four-year degree granting institution. Um, so we're subject to regulatory things within Texas. However, um, the way that the federal government inserts itself into higher education is through the accrediting bodies. So beyond state authorization, you have to become, we don't have to, but most schools are voluntarily accredited. And so being accredited means you have to be accredited by a large regional body. So it's no longer a state. It's between the state and the federal government. And the accreditors sort of determine whether or not your school is worthy of accreditation, whether you meet all the standards they set. The federal government will not distribute federal money, whether it's through grants, federal loans, research dollars, to any institution that's not accredited. So the federal government, um, let's say, um, interacts with the accreditors and 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 sort of sets helps set standards that are amenable to the federal government that are carried through by the accreditors. Um, that's how you start to see the kind of seepage of let's say federal federal regulation into a university that's embedded in a particular state. Got it. Uh, on Facebook, Zachary Taylor asks thoughts on where you'd like uh, University of Austin to be five years down the line, 10 years, 20, how do you plan to try and scale? Yeah, I think there are, there are two answers to that question um, in terms of the scale. Uh, you know, we, you know, we have um, intentions of scaling as an institution significantly. Um, now, I believe, not everybody agrees with me on this, um, but, you know, I believe that for undergraduate education, it is essential that you conduct that education in person because you are shaping human beings. When they're 18 years old, they're coming to you. It, that kind of intensive formation that one needs to be shaped at that period of life is precludes online education. I mean, you might there might be an occasional opportunity for something online, but the core of the education has to be in person. So that affects scalability, right? You can only grow an undergraduate institution so far at the undergraduate level. Um, but we do have um, ambitions of, let's say, branching out from that core undergraduate mission into graduate programs, continuing ed, dual credit high school programs and that, that we think are gonna scale up pretty quickly into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands and beyond. Um, and so, so as an institution, we plan on scaling outwards. The other answer to the question is, we want to, by our example, inspire other new universities to be founded. We wanna create, or let's say inspire, just a whole new constellation of institutions that will introduce new models, new ideas, new ways of you know, um, advancing higher education. And by being successful, by being the newest university in America and, and, and actually accomplishing what we set out to do, there are many other schools that we know will follow in our wake. I have conversations with people all the time on this front. People, you know, different groups call me up and say, I just said, well, there's a group in Canada that wants to start a UAT version in Canada. There's another group um, in, uh, in Colombia, in the country, uh, Colombia, that wants to start a university, actually a libertarian university. Uh, you know, there, you, there, there are different models that people are, are, are conceiving of right now, and they're looking to us as the kind of, let's say, tip of the spear. And so I think our success will inspire a kind of, you know, you know a multiplication of new institutions. And so that's a different version of scaling, but one I think that's also very important. Yes, there's our dear friend, uh, Marsha Enright with her Reliance College project. And then of course, our most recent honoree at the Atlas Society's Gala, Ricardo Salinas with his uh, Universidad Libertad yep. down in Mexico City. So yeah, this is, it's percolating, it's happening. 
Um, well, you kind of got to this question uh, with regards to um, graduate studies, but uh, Tommy Long on Instagram is asking, any advice for current college students who might be interested in a master's course at uh, University of Austin? Is there such a program on the horizon? I guess I will add to that as somebody who transferred from Columbia to Harvard for my college degree, uh, what about opportunities for, for transfer students? So here's where here's where the regulatory state intervenes. Um, so we are not allowed, this is a Texas regulation, we're not allowed to offer graduate programs until we've been running our undergraduate program for two years. So we fully intend in year three of operation uh, to begin offering master's level programs. And we have a kind of prototype program that we've run as a fellowship program in entrepreneurship and leadership. We're developing a master's program uh, in grand strategy with uh, some of our friends who, who inhabit that world. We're looking at master's programs uh, in uh, everything from journalism to filmmaking. So we're gonna have a slate of master's programs launching hopefully in 2026. Um, and it's the same thing with transfer students. We're not allowed to take any transfer students for the first two years of operation. Um, I think this is a reasonable thing. I think the state just wants to make sure that a new institution has enough traction and before right. you're starting to pull students out of other institutions, so, you know, I don't find that offensive. Um, but yeah, but we're you know, so we're planning. I, I think in year three is when we're going to be authorized to begin accepting transfer students. Interesting. All right, Tommy. Hope that is good enough for you or any college students in your your life. Uh, okay, this is a question. Georgie Alexopoulos um, has. This to ask, why build the university in Austin, especially with how left-leaning it is? You might want to add your son's comment on uh, moving to Austin. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I I also wonder whether or not that, that might be changing. Uh, you know, I know there's all of this uh, concern about, um, oh, the Californians are moving to Texas. Well, those Californians that are moving to Texas are voting more conservative than than yeah. the Texans themselves. So you guys, that's a good thing. But yeah, um, Austin. I, so yeah, I'll, I will share the story um, that I shared with you before we were uh, online. Um, when, when we were moving to Austin, I have a teenage son who is, um, I'll characterize him as, as a, a very conservative young man. And uh, he's 14. And we were out here looking at houses and there was a big sign. Many of you have probably heard this phrase, keep Austin weird, you know? And so there's a big sign somewhere, billboard. I can't remember what it was and it, it had that keep Austin weird. And my son's like, dad, when we move to Austin, we're gonna make Austin normal. <laughs> and the, the truth is actually, I think that's kind of what's happening in Austin. Yeah, I mean, Austin that's my has, this, has this kind of reputation for being very liberal, I think in the kind of the older sense of the term, a kind of, you know, dope smoking, hippie, music, creative kind of way. That's That was the culture in Austin, you know, the, the sort of Willie Nelsons of the world, you know, and, and I think that's still part of Austin. But, you know, I've lived East Coast, West Coast, North, South, other countries. Um, Austin is far from politically monochromatic. Um, apart from the University of, of Texas, like, you know, most major universities is its kind of own closed ecosystem. Outside of that, I actually find Austin to be remarkably um, uh, sort of welcoming and and interested in different ideas. It's a very innovative entrepreneurial place. And that's really why we decided to build the university. I mean, Austin, well, but as Austin is the city that's creating the future right now. All these maverick thinkers, all these builders and entrepreneurs who are tired of the kind of calcified environment of a Silicon Valley or tired of, you know, the way things are done, you know, in, in places like New York. They're moving to Austin. They are gathering together regularly. They're, they're bouncing ideas off each other. And we're in the thick of these things. I mean, University of Austin is really, at its heart, a kind of entrepreneurial venture. I mean, we're at one massive startup. 
And, you know, I often say that, you know, our particular mission is to found a university that will forge the next generation of American founders. But, you know, what we're trying to do is graduate young people who are, who are gonna build and create and innovate and, you know, come up with the next big idea, the next great company who aren't, you know, motivated by, you know, getting a, a stamp, uh, a, you know, from an elite university and going straight to Goldman Sachs or something like that. You know, so, so that's our particular mission. And that's what's happening in Austin. I mean, Austin is a tremendously entrepreneurial place right now. And there's so many things that are happening here that are, are sort of playing together ideas. One of my favorite examples, a, a friend that I've made since coming here started a company called Icon. And you know, his particular, the challenge he was trying to solve was the challenge of affordable housing. And, and so one day he was watching his son, his son had a project to laser print something at school and he's looking at his laser printer. It's like, what if we had laser print houses? Like, what would that look like? So he created wow. this company that laser prints houses. They have these huge, they look like laser printers, but they're like the size of like, you know, uh, cranes really. And, you know, running on computer programs that you can actually program on your iPhone they, they have these streams of concrete that they pour in patterns, layer over layer over layer, the same way you would do use a, um, a laser printer. And they could build up these beautiful houses in 48 hours at about a third the cost of building a house in, an, in another way. And so uh, that's the kind of stuff like that's that's what's happening in Austin now. And I just love that environment. That's really cool. All right. We've got less than 10 minutes, so I'm just going to take one more question. Sorry to all of you guys, dozens of you that I was not able to get to. Uh, Yasser Fiat on Instagram asks, why do mainstream universities funnel millions of dollars into stadiums and college sports teams, but don't do the same for actual education? It's almost like a plant because that's the exact um uh, that, that I would say that our, our, the moral center of our institution is about making sure that universities do what they're meant to do, and that is focus on academics, focus on learning and the discovery of knowledge, which is why we won't have any sports teams and won't have a stadium and won't have sushi bars and all that. Um, why do schools do this? Uh, I think fundamentally, um, I think it's a market issue. It's that, you know, there are too few, too many schools chasing too few qualified students. And so they try to distinguish themselves through amenities, through the student experience, through the climbing wall, or through the fancy dormitories, or through the successful sports team. I mean, if you go on a college tour today, and I'm doing this now, I have a daughter who's a, a junior in high school. So I kind of go undercover and I go on college tours with her. Rarely does a school actually highlight its academic programs. You know, they're going to highlight the beautiful student center overlooking the lake, you know, or the, you know, 25 different clubs you can join or the success of their, you know, big 12 sports team or whatever it is. You know, they almost never talk about what happens in the classroom. And so what is happening at schools is that the general cost of, of providing you know, this comprehensive life experience is what's driving the cost of higher education. It's why there are so many more administrators. I mean, there are schools today like Yale that have more administrators than undergraduates, right? The number of professors has not changed significantly over the years. The number of administrators in some schools has grown seven, eight, nine fold. And it's wow. because of this kind of service-minded um, way of thinking about students as consumers of a product. Well, that cost has to be borne by someone. So, you know, institutions are guilty of providing, you know, the kind of club med opportunities for students. Students and families are guilty of, of making those choices too, you know, and following in those pathways, which then encourages the cycle. You know, we are radically, radically reducing the footprint of administration um, at the University of Austin. You know, we are, you know, most schools spend anywhere from, you know, two thirds, three quarters and up of their um, annual um, 
uh, operating budget on administration, you know, we're flipping that. We're saying we're going to spend two thirds, three quarters of our annual operating budget on what happens in the classroom. All right. Well, we're coming to an end, but I did want to get this question in because I think that one of the uh, most shocking and disturbing things that's happened on college campus um, over the past three years is all of the the mandates uh, forcing students to take vaccines they they really didn't need um, and that probably didn't outweigh uh, the the risks and of course the mask mandates and, and sending kids home and, and actually not making them uh, take classes on Zoom. So um, kind of a two-part question, whether you can whether you were uh, president of St. John's during COVID um, and whether you could speak to any of the soft and hard policy advisories you received and then also any discussions about how the University of Austin might respond to future potential lockdowns and mandates. Well, I, sim I simply hope that that's never the case, but I'll, I, I, won't, <laughs> I, I won't count on that. Um, yeah, I was president at St. John's during COVID. Um, and, um, you know, it was such a challenging time because nobody, you know, sort of you were making decisions that had impact on the lives of a huge community in real time and not knowing what the outcome might be. I mean, I remember early on, you know, our students were away for spring break when, when the sort of, you know, the full weight of what was happening became evident to the world. And we had a two week spring break. And so I remember the early discussions like, well, let's delay bringing students back a week or two weeks. And, you know, and and that extended to what we have to cancel this semester, which extended to, you know, fighting to bring students back in the fall and having to make everything happen so they can come back. It was just such a hot mess. I mean, it wasn't just that the institutions had opinions, but every member of the institution had an opinion. You know, the faculty who just refused to enter a classroom. You know, parents who had wanted demands, you know, were making demands on safety. Um, people who were, you know, on the front lines, security, and, you know, people would be preparing foods and wanting to make sure that they weren't treated differently than the professors who had the option to say, I'm not coming in to teach and all that. It was a, it was a, it was a real hot mess. Um, but the fundamental principle that we abided by, and, you know, I'm proud to say that we held to was, our mission is to teach, and our teaching mission depends upon having students in face-to-face -face contact with each other and professors. And so we pushed as hard as possible to get students back in the classroom as quickly as we did, and we were among the first schools to do that. Um, but it was, you know, there was no crystal ball at that time um, and no way to, um, to, to really chart what was happening. So I would say as it was one of the most confusing times to be a leader of, of any kind of institution in the country. And, but, you know, I think for me, a load star in that moment, and this would inform my future thinking about this, was that of all things that must be paramount, freedom of conscience ultimately has to be paramount. That no institution has the right to intrude upon the interior conscience of another human being. And so that has to be honored. Well, uh, if that is not a reason to apply and to support University of Austin, then I don't know what is um, in the minute or so that we have left. Pano, any final thoughts or things that we haven't covered that you want to get across? I would just say to all of you who are out there, thank you for, for um, being part of this conversation and, and, and hearing what we have to say. It is, we are so excited to welcome our first class of 100 students, the Brave 100, we're, we're calling them. These are students who, just by virtue of being willing to jump into um, this institution and build a new university alongside of us, they are, by definition, going to be the next generation of builders and founders and innovators and leaders. And so if you know students who are built that way, students who have that, that kind of maverick character, that desire to um, to jump into the thick of things and create things that will make the world better, um, send them our way, uaustin.org. Send them my way. Send them me directly. I'd love to talk to these students and um, would love, you know, love anybody who has that kind of connection or impulse to make sure that you're getting the word out that um, that we're here to 
to welcome those students and, and, and build this new institution. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Pano, uh, for joining us during this very busy year and Godspeed, if, if I can say that, on what you're doing. Um, I'm just uh, so thrilled and encouraged and inspired. And um, that's part of what we like to do here at the Atlas Society. We are all kind of wired to look at the, the negative, um, but there are a lot of really encouraging, positive things happening in the world. And as I like to say, uh, in order to be objective, you need to be perspective. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and thanks to all of you who have joined, especially those who keep coming back and asking great questions. And I know you are, at least to some extent, uh, believers in our objectivist values. You don't believe in something for nothing. You don't believe in uh, being a moocher. So if you are enjoying this content and uh, getting something out of our program, now would be a great time to come forward with your first donation to the Atlas Society. Our board of trustees is matching all new donations before the end of the year. So even a five, 10, 20, $50 donation would be wonderful. And I'd be very grateful. Um, so I want to uh, also encourage you guys to come back. I'm very excited next week. We have our returning guest, Johan Norberg, coming back on the Atlas Society Asks to talk about his latest book, The Capitalist Manifesto. We'll see you then.